Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 to 18. This will be our text this morning. Now, we've been in a series in 2 Peter on Christian growth or growth in the Christian life, which is really the idea in the Scriptures of growing in the resurrected life of Christ, growing in the glorified holiness of Christ. It's a life of holiness. We're going to finish our series by reviewing the letter in brief. So in many ways, our text truly this morning is the whole book of 2 Peter. It's only three chapters, so it should be easy for us to touch on all of its major points. But the main idea of 2 Peter can be found in verse 17 to 18. And so that's where I turned your attention now. The main idea is that we should be growing in Christ. We should be growing in the grace or the righteousness of Christ. We should be growing in the knowledge of Christ. And we should be growing in the anticipation of Christ's return, His glorious return, when He comes again to bring us into glory. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Now I'm going to pause here, we're going to make a few comments as we look at these two verses. The this there immediately refers to the fact that Peter in verse 16, if we remember from last week mentioned that it is possible to twist the Scriptures. But I think that Peter is actually referring back to the whole letter, to the broad idea of the whole letter of Second Peter. That because we are united to a risen, ascended, and soon coming Jesus Christ, because we are united to the victorious and glorified Christ, that His life, His resurrected life, lives within us. We ought to be pursuing a life that's worthy of His glory. We ought to be pursuing a glorified life. And we ought to be pursuing a glorified life by pursuing a life of holiness that's rooted in His grace. And I believe that that's what the this refers back to. The whole theme, the whole idea of the book of 2 Peter. And so Second Peter says, so Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, "...you therefore, beloved, knowing this..." beforehand. Take care that you're not carried away. Carried away from this Christ. Carried away from His holiness. Carried away from His resurrected life. Carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the holiness that is the fruit of grace. And grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Well, we can break this text simply into three parts. And really, we can break the whole book into three parts, as we have done. A believer is to be growing in the grace of Christ, the righteousness of our glorified and exalted Savior. We to be growing in the knowledge of Christ as revealed to us in Scriptures. And we're to be growing in the anticipation of His soon return in glory. That is, we ought to be always growing in the readiness to say, to you be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And these are our three points this morning. First of all, we're to be growing in the grace of Christ. Turn with me back to the beginning of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1-3, through 3, Peter introduces us to the amazing grace of God that has come to us in Christ Jesus. And he does this in some interesting ways. He does this in the way he signs his name on the book, the way that he addresses his audience, and the way that he pronounces his benediction. 
Peter introduces us to the grace of God in the way that he signs his name. We have here his name, Simeon Peter, his old name and his new name, the name that Christ gave him. Peter is a new creature in Jesus Christ. He's been given a new name. A transformation has taken place in his life by the call and the power of the grace of this Christ. He calls himself a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. He's a willing slave of the Lord Jesus. A a change has taken place in his heart. He's no longer the dark, self-serving, sinful man he once was. He's now a willing servant of the risen, resurrected, ruling and reigning, and soon returning Christ. He's an apostle. He's been called by Christ to proclaim the message of this transforming power of Christ's grace. This message of the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom. He's Simeon Peter, the slave of Jesus Christ, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He introduces us to the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus. In the way that he addresses his audience, he introduces us to the amazing grace of God. Peter writes to those who have obtained. The idea of obtaining something is that it's a sovereign bestowal of a gift. It's to those who have received the gift of God. What's the gift of God? They've obtained a faith. They've obtained the gift of faith, a living faith, the principle of new life in their souls. Like Peter, they are new creatures in Christ. A transformation has taken place in them. And Peter calls their faith holy. It's of equal standing. Or your translation might say it's like precious. It's of equal standing with ours, the Apostle says. The holy Apostle Peter of the holy Apostles, of the holy prophets. It's a holy faith. It's a principle of holiness. And this is the gift that God has sovereignly, by election, bestowed upon us. It was by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was a righteous gift purchased by the righteousness of Christ. And it holds out for us the promise of righteousness. That's what Peter means there when he uses that phrase. It's by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Peter introduces us to the amazing grace of God. He just comes out of the gate here. Verse 2 of He introduces us to the amazing grace of God and the benediction that He pronounces upon us. And you can see that there. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This benediction that Peter uses here is an adaptation of the Old Testament Aaronic blessing. You remember from Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 to 26. In the Old Testament, the Aaronic blessing was the way that God placed His name upon the people indicating his covenantal commitment and union with them. And so Peter is nodding to this idea. In Christ, we have entered into a covenantal union with Jesus Christ. The grace of the peace of God and our Savior, he pronounces upon us. He has placed the name of Christ upon us. God has placed upon himself his name upon us. He has united us to himself. We are not our own. We are our master's. We are the kings. We are the Lord Jesus. We are in His hands. We are united to Him. This is our comfort in life and death, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. That we belong to Him, both body and soul. The amazing grace of God. He introduces us to it. He introduces us to these major themes of righteousness and anticipation and the grace of God. And then so in verse 3-11, through 11, he continues on to exhort us, because the grace of God has come to us with such power and such strength in the union with Jesus Christ that we have, we must be growing in it. We must be diligent to pursue a life that's worthy of this grace. We must be diligent to pursue a life uh, that is consistent with the fruits of this grace. We must pursue a holy life. 
based on the grace of God that has come to us. And Peter in chapter 3, verse through 11, reminds us of the provision for this life, the activity that God calls us to in this life, and the rewards that are promised for us in this life. And so in verse 3 through 4, he focuses our attention again on the amazing grace of God because God has supplied all that we need in this life. This isn't something that we do in our own strength, or our own effort. It's something that we do by the power of the Holy Trinity, through the call of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what he says, look at verse 3, His divine power, that's especially a reference to God the Father. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, or that is to a godly life. Through the knowledge of Him, that is through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who calls us to His own glory and excellence. That is, who calls us to His own resurrected life, His glorified virtue, His perfect humanity, His holy and righteous character, seated at the right hand of the Father, finished, victorious over sin and death. He calls us to His own glory and excellence, the Son does. By which, that is through this call, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. That's primarily a reference to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Which the Scriptures teach us every other promise of the New Covenant comes through. So that through them, that is through these promises, and the ones who give these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, that is the character of God, this glorious life of grace, this glorious life of holiness, this excellent glory or this, this virtue of Christ having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so the Father has granted us everything through Christ for what we need for a godly life and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 5-7, through he goes on to begin to describe to us the activity of this godly life, this life-seeking, Christ-like virtue. (laughs) And he tells us in verse 7, for this very reason, verse 5, for this very reason, look there, it's important, that language, because this isn't something we do in our own strength. It's because God has provided all that we need that we are called to what? To make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, to adapt to our faith this virtue of Jesus Christ, this concept of virtue, is important for us to think about because it's what Peter means here. And I'm going I'm to take some time on this. I'm going to hit it for a few minutes. I'm going to dwell on it. Because it's important for you to know that Peter is not simply calling us to be virtuous. He's not just calling us to live a life that corresponds to the virtue that we see in the world. Or through what is called the, the perennial philosophy or the pagan philosophers. And I preached on this and I worked through this and we went in detail about it and I'm afraid that I miscommunicated. And if I did, I I apologize and I ask your forgiveness. But let me just very quickly go over what Peter is talking about here in verse 5-7 through because he's calling us to Christ's virtue. He's not calling us to the virtue of this world. He's calling us to Christ's virtue. But he wants us to think about this. So again, he's not just calling us to living a moral life or a better life or living according to the principles that he lays down here in verse 6 and 7, steadfastness and so on. Although that's what this life consists of. He's calling us to think about this and to implement it in our life. He wants us to adapt this concept of virtue ethics to our Christianity. There's an analogy here. The concept of virtue ethics is a very simple concept. It's one that we're unfamiliar with in our world. The basic idea of the concept of virtue ethics is that a person lives his best life when he lives according to his nature. 
Now, according to the old philosophers, according to the strict definition of what virtue is, human beings are thought to be rational animals. And so the way that we live our best life or a good life, the way that we live a moral life, is that we live according to reason. Because that's our nature. But brothers and sisters, that's not the nature that we have in union with the resurrected Christ. We are, not, we are no longer united to the old Adam, to the old man, and to the ways of this world. We're no longer united to a man who lived his life by his reason. We live a life united to Jesus Christ, who is the new Adam, the better Adam, the spiritual man. And we have a spiritual nature like Christ. We have the living Christ living within us. And we live a life like He did, according to the Word of God and for the glory of His Father. And we live according to Christ's principles. And so what Peter's calling us here is to think about this new life that we have, this new nature that is ours, that's Christ. It's a risen nature. It's a glorified nature. It's a ruling and reigning nature. It's a nature that has already finished its war with sin and is seated at the Father's right hand and is coming again to consummate in sinless perfection the glory of this nature. And we are to live according to this. We're to live holy lives, godly lives, Christ-like virtue in knowledge and steadfastness and self-control and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And there's so much more that we could say there, but that's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to live like Christ, according to Christ's exalted humanity, because we are united one flesh with Him in His exalted humanity. And we're to be pursuing it. Now, we can't be perfect in this life, but brothers, we can pursue it. And we can pursue it by the power of God and the call of Jesus Christ because His exalted humanity lives within us. Verse 8-11, through 11, Peter calls our attention to the rewards of living this life. They're all of grace. He wants us to grow in this grace of Christ, this holiness of Christ's character based on grace. So he mentions the rewards in verse 8-11. through 11. Look at verse 8. If these qualities... This holiness based on grace, this virtue of a resurrected Christ. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, if you're growing in them, if you're diligently pursuing them by the grace of God that's at work within you by the power of His Holy Spirit, they, and he goes on to give us the rewards that we can expect to unfold in our life. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to be brief. I'm going to give you an overview. I don't want to preach my sermons all over again. But verse 8, protection from fruitlessness. You can see that there, the way that it's worded. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It promises fruitfulness. A life of fruitfulness is a life that brings glory to God and true benefit to His people. Verse 9, protection from blindness to the cleansing we've received. Look at the way he puts this in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. He's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This protects us from forgetting that we are washed, that we are clean, that in Christ we are righteous and we are holy. We are covered in His righteousness. The principle of holiness lives within us. God has washed away the guilt and the shame and those former sins and He calls us to a new life of holiness and the majesty and the beauty of holiness in Jesus Christ. What a precious gift God has given us by His grace. Well, if we can persist in these things, we'll be protected from forgetting that great truth. (laughs) Verse 10, we'll be protected from falling. 
the main proposition of verse 10 comes at the end. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, he doesn't mean that you'll never sin. He doesn't mean that you'll never backslide. But he means that you'll persist in the Christian life and that God in His faithfulness will see to it that you make progress in holiness. The Proverbs, one of my favorite Proverbs, just to illustrate this point or to elaborate on upon it for just a moment. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16 promises us this. The righteous fall seven times and rises again. The wicked fall and perish. <laughs> That's a reminder to us that we stumble in many things, but God is faithful to us. And He's given us the gift of repentance. And when we fall, we renew our repentance by the grace of God. And that's essentially what Peter is reminding us of here. The Christ that we're united to, who lives within us, who has saved us and that we trusted and believe in, is the risen Lord. <laughs> and His resurrection life lives within us. And that means that we have been enabled by God to live a holy and a righteous life and to participate in the glory of it all by the grace of God. It's wonderful rich things that Peter is talking about here. So that's why he says in verse 10, therefore make your calling and election sure. Brothers, there's no progress in sanctification unless you're assured. Now this doesn't mean that True Christians can't struggle with assurance, but let me just mention very briefly, this is what he's getting at. Look again at verse 10. He says, therefore if you... Verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What Peter is doing is he's building a relationship. He's saying, look, it's your assurance, it's your faith in Jesus Christ that gives you the strength and the power that you need to pursue these qualities. So keep making your calling and election sure, because that's where your strength comes from. Keep running back to Christ. Keep running back to His righteousness. Keep running back to the truth that He's risen, ascended, glorified and coming back soon. This is where your strength comes from. If you don't believe that, if you're struggling with that, if you're wishy-washy on it, where's the holiness going to come from? So he's saying, pursue this. It's a commandment. God commands assurance to trust Him. And it's by the power of our faith, by the power of His grace, that we grow in holiness. So these are the rewards. Protection from fruitfulness. Protection from blindness to our cleansing. Never falling. Verse 11, of course, is the ultimate reward for in this way that is through a life like this in which we've been called to share in Christ's virtue and to pursue it, that there will be richly provided for you that is by the grace of God an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A kingdom that has been purchased by His blood, secured by His righteousness, and granted to us as a free gift. This is motivation for us to live a holy life and to pursue it because God has already planned and purposed to give us the kingdom, <laughs> to give us a world of righteousness, a world of sinless perfection, and all through Jesus Christ and all based on his grace to us. And so Peter, at the end of the book, comes back around and he says, Grow in the grace of Christ. That's where I started my book. And I said, grow in this and increase in it. God has provided everything. He's provided the resources, the method, and the rich reward. It's an amazing grace that has come to us in Christ Jesus. It's been purchased by His blood. It's been secured by His victory. He's coming again to consummate it. Therefore, pursue this grace. 
pursue a glorified life, pursue a resurrected life, a life that is lived in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. Pursue a holy life based on grace. Well, how are we to do this? We're to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's the second point of the book of 2 Peter. We're to be growing in the knowledge of Christ as it's revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. And so you see how Peter transitions to this idea in verse 12 and, and through 15 and, and forward. He deals with this idea of growing in the knowledge of Christ all the way through the end of chapter 2. But he transitions to it here in verse 12 through 15. We're to grow in the regular reminder and recall of the things that we've been taught, of the Scriptures, of the truth and the message of the Bible. And the practical application of this, of course, is that we must be making a priority of the means of grace because this is how we grow. This is where we grow in grace. This is the foundation, this knowledge of Christ that comes to us in the Scriptures. Look at how he puts this here in verse 12 through 15. We need to be reminded. And we need to be reminded for the goal of recollection. Here's what he says, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, that is, of this resurrected Christ and His holiness and His righteousness. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, you know that Christ has come and has been the purchase price for the salvation of sinners and has won victory over sin, death, the world, the devil, all of our enemies, the flesh, has ascended to the Father's right hand, is ruling and reigning in glory, and is going to soon return again to bring us into His glory. You already know this. But Peter says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established to the truth that I have. I think it's right as long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. I think it's right to my dying breath to do this, Peter is saying emphasizing his point, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I'm long gone, you may be able at any time to recall these things. We have to be growing in the knowledge of Christ that comes to us in the Word, and that means we need to be reminded and reminded and reminded and reminded until we can recall it at any time. The truth of the Gospel. The truth of Jesus Christ. The reality that we are married, united, and belong to. A risen Lord who's coming soon for us. In verse 16-21, through 21, Peter supports this exhortation. He gives us five reasons why we need to be able to recollect this message. And I've already sort of given it away for you, but it's such a wonderful idea. He elaborates on it. Verse 16. There's five reasons. Reason number one, the things that we preach to you about Christ, these are not myths. Peter's very bold here. Love Peter because he's like this. This is not the best way. Nobody says this. Nobody comes out with Christianity and thinks to be persuasive with people by saying, let me reiterate to you that this isn't a fairy tale, this isn't a myth. But that's exactly what Peter does. This is not a cleverly devised myth that we made known to you. But when we preach to you, Peter says there at the end of verse 16, it was this message, this message of ultimate reality, this message that can be summarized like this, and he puts it like this, the power, the coming, and the majesty of Jesus Christ 
We didn't invent this because we thought that this would be a good way to help coax people into a moral life. Put off the old, put on the new. This is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the Son of the Father. This is the Word of God to us, he'll say in verse 20 through 21. It's not the words of men, it wasn't invented by men. It wasn't come up by the interpretation of men. But God spoke through these men as the Holy Spirit moved them. This is the message of Jesus Christ and His rule and reign. And it has transformational power. And it has the power to make holy. It has the power to bring salvation and cleansing to a sinner's soul and to teach him in the way. And Peter's on fire here. He says this is the reason why we have to remember it. It's not just helpful. It's not words for life. It's not moral lessons. It's the revelation of the triune God through the ascended Christ. It's an encounter with the living God. It's an encounter with ultimate reality. That's what he says in verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now it's important that we realize that what Peter's referring back to, what he's talking about, is that moment on the mountain of transfiguration. You remember in the Gospels, the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus goes up into the high mountain and he brings Peter and James and John with him and he's transfigured. Before he's died, before he's resurrected, before he's ascended, God the Father gives them a peek at the real nature of Jesus Christ and who he is as victor over sin and death. They get a foretaste of his post-resurrection glory and the light is so bright they can barely look at him and they're terrified. And Moses and Elijah are there with him to reiterate that that, holy, that glory, that majesty is the glory and the majesty of his righteous holiness, of his purity, and the purity of his grace. And it's a revelation of the Father. And it's a revelation of the Son. And it's a revelation of the Holy Spirit. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, that's by the Holy Spirit, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Peter reiterates, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. He had mentioned already in verse 16, we were eyewitnesses to it. For we were with him on the holy mountain. We have encountered this resurrected Christ. Peter is saying to us as he's writing the letter of Second Peter, I'm not just writing to you things that I think are good ideas or a deposit that I learned from some instructor. I've seen the risen Lord. I encountered Him. He encountered me. And this is the Christ who lives within you. This is the Christ who's ruling and reigning now. This is the Christ that you're united to by covenant. And so we need to hear this message. And we need to be reminded of it. And we need to be reminded of it until we can recall it. Verse 19, we need to be reminded and recall it because it's a privilege the Old Testament saints didn't have. Look at how he puts this in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, I know that there's lots of debates about how to interpret that phrase. And my purpose today is not to go into those details. I already have in our series. My purpose is to simply reiterate to you what I think Peter is saying here, the best of my ability. (laughs) But I think that what Peter means here is that he's got the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The idea that he's communicating is that the Old Testament predicts the coming of Christ, 
It predicts his victory. It predicts his kingdom. It predicts his ascension and his rule and reign in the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, we have those prophecies fulfilled. (laughs) That's what Peter means. We have it more fully confirmed. We have that risen Christ. I saw him on the mountain. I saw the empty tomb. He's ruling and reigning today. We don't just have the hope of His rule and reign, brothers. He's ruling and reigning. That's the truth that the Scriptures teach us. And that's the truth that we believe and that has such power in our life. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. (laughs) So, brothers, we ought to hear the message. We ought to keep coming back to church. And sitting under the preaching and hearing again that Jesus has come. He's won victory over death. He sits at the Father's right hand. He's coming again soon. He's ruling and reigning today. And all that that means for us. I'm just giving you the shorthand, of course. This is a a privilege the Old Testament saints don't have, but we do have. And then notice what he says next, because understanding what Peter means, you say... No, duh, Peter. (laughs) But this is what he says. Verse 18. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention to as a light in a dark place. You're like, yeah, of course. That's exactly what it is. Light in this dark world, in my life of sin. And I'm so thankful for it. But notice what he says at the very end, because his point here is that the reason why we need to keep coming back and being reminded to the point of recollection is because it has personal transformational power. It has the power to make us holy. It has the power to make us like Christ by faith. We have the, verse 19 again, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until, now this is the key point, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Because little by little, Peter is saying, as you hear this message, you'll be conformed to the image of the Christ that it speaks about. Until the day star rises. That's Christ. That's Christ in His glory. To the morning star rises. And the day dawns. That's the glory of Christ. That's the glory of His holiness. The glory of His divine character. The glory of His virtues. In your heart. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we're being transformed We're being transfigured as we look into the face of Jesus Christ in the Word from one degree of glory to the next. Beautiful things that Peter speaks here. He calls us to grow in grace of Jesus Christ. He he calls us to grow in grace by growing in the knowledge of Christ as it's revealed in the Word, which is why now that we come into chapter 2, he's so intent on warning us about the false teachers because they're opposed to this whole message. They're they're seeking to sabotage your knowledge of Christ. (laughs) They're seeking to lead you astray back into sin, back into the old ways. And so Peter in chapter 2 warns us that there are men who are going to infiltrate. They're going to sneak into the church. And they are going to try to lead you astray from this Christ and from His glory. And from the power of His resurrected life. And the likeness of His resurrected life. So he warns us about their existence and their nature. He comforts us with their condemnation. He warns us with their corruption and their deceptiveness. Beautiful chapter here, very difficult chapter to deal with, but I think you'll see the big picture here today. 
Here's what Peter says as he transitions out of what he just said that we need to be reminded to the point of recollection. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets rose among the people in the Old Testament, so there will be false teachers among you. Their existence, they're real. They're real in present danger. And the idea of a false prophet in the Old Testament was that they led the people astray from worshiping the Lord their God and obeying Him. They led them astray from trusting in the Lord and seeking to love Him. But notice how he speaks about their nature. The false prophets arose among the people. There will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies. The, The idea of secret there isn't just infiltrating. They have an intent to do so. These are wicked men. You'll see how Peter unfolds this. They have a purpose and a desire to lead you astray. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. Denying Christ's rule and reign. Denying His victory. Denying His resurrection. Denying His glory. Denying His soon return. Denying His current rule and reign. And His second coming and His judgment. Denying His divinity. And His sovereignty. And His right to rule. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There's the promise. The condemnation. And they're in their greed. Uh, verse 3, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. You see, they can deny Christ. But they can't negate His reality. <laughs> They can pretend to live out from beneath his rule, but that doesn't nullify his rule. And so Peter comforts us and reminds us here that their destruction will be swift. They will be present. They will come into the church. We're warned about it, but we can trust the Lord our God is sovereign over this and will protect his own people. He will protect his sheep. He will protect his children because our God is the great overseer and shepherd of our souls, and our shepherd, our great pastor, rules and reigns with awesome resurrected power. But notice how he puts this then in verse 4 through 9, where he begins to speak about the details of this condemnation. Essentially what he's saying is, is we know that Christ will condemn them because we have these examples from the Scriptures. Now, what I want you to notice here that I didn't bring out in this series, look at verse 4. It says, For if God did not, and he goes through this list of examples, and he turns our attention to God in verse 4. And then in verse 9, skip down there really quickly. Since God has done these things, he's going to list there for us these four, three examples of condemnation upon the wicked. Then the Lord knows. And we see a transition in Peter's language from God. In the Old Testament, with the three examples that are listed there for us, to the Lord. Now, not always, but typically in the New Testament, when you see this kind of transition in this kind of a tight context, God refers to God the Father, and the Lord refers especially to Jesus Christ as He is known as Christ, the ruling and reigning King of His new covenant people. And this is interesting for us, and just follow along with me here a moment, I'm going to read the text. Here's the condemnation of the false teachers. Here's how we know it'll be swift, because God's done this before. He's done it three times in the Old Testament, where He's destroyed the ungodly, He's destroyed the wicked, and He's done it swiftly. He gives us three examples, the fallen angels, the world of the flood in Noah's day, and Sodom and Gomorrah. So starting in verse 4, For if God, that is the Father in the Old Testament, 
did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's a, ref- that's a reference to the fallen angels. How long did it take God to cast the fallen angels out of heaven? It was swift, brothers. It was immediate. Verse 5, If He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's a reference to the flood of Noah, the flood of the world. How long did it take God to do it? You remember what He says in Genesis chapter 6, I'm giving humanity 120 years. Swift. Noah, you have 120 years to build a boat and to preach the Gospel to these people. At the end of 120 years, I'm destroying the whole thing. Swift destruction. And then Sodom and Gomorrah is the next example that he gives us. Verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction... Now, the idea of condemning them to extinction is, is that he obliterated them, and he has so. He, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that surrounded, he turned them to ash, and they have remained so to this day, <laughs> never to be rebuilt again. Making them an example of what he's going to do to all the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If this is what God did, if he didn't spare the fallen angels or the world of the flood because of their sin, or Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin, then the Lord, then the Son of the Father, who is the brightness of the image of His glory, who sits at His right hand, who's being given all authority in heaven and earth, who's ruling and reigning, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to rescue His church. He knows how to rescue believers from the false teachers and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in lust and a defiling passion and despise authority, verse 10, he goes into the corruption of these false teachers, the reason why their destruction is justified, why it's so swift, why their condemnation is so severe. And I'm simply going to read this for you, verse 10 all the way down to verse 16. Those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's badness. 
I mean, there is a litany. There is a description. But Peter's point is these men are real. They get into the church. They are this kind of wickedness and evil and depravity is at work in their hearts. You are susceptible to it. We talked about that. I'm not going to revisit it here. They are real temptations to us, real dangers to us, and we must be aware of them. Peter is helpful to us here to point out Balaam is the example because, again, these people, they're infiltrators. They are intentional. They want to lead you astray from Christ and His rule and His holiness and to lead you back into sin. Peter here, is, he's not teaching us to become heresy hunters. He's not teaching us to be nitpickers. He's not saying that everyone who speaks something that you disagree with is a false teacher. But he's saying there's these, real, these false teachers, these wicked men who are dead set on undermining the rule and reign of Jesus Christ and His glorious grace in your life and the power that it has to transform you and to make you holy and righteous and to lead you astray. Be careful about them. Again, our comfort is that Christ sees them and is ready to judge them. He goes on and he talks about their deceptiveness in verse 17 through 22. He mentions three things. They promise fulfillment. Uh, They bring only emptiness. They promise freedom. They bring only bondage. They promise progress. But they bring only turning back. And he very quickly looks at these. Look at these at verse 17. These false teachers, they are waterless springs. There's the idea of something that promises, something that's fulfilling. A spring promises water. Water is fulfilling. These men promise fulfillment, but they are waterless. They have none to deliver. They are mist driven by a storm. There's the idea of a rain cloud. It promises rain. It promises something that is fulfilling, but it's empty. These deceptions, these false promises that these false teachers make, They don't speak the truth. They undermine the foundation of true fulfillment, which is the hope of the return of Christ and the power of His resurrected life. They promise freedom. Verse 19, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So they promise freedom, but they can bring only bondage. Because only one who can... Free us from bondage is Jesus Christ. And they've undermined the teaching about Jesus Christ. Verse 20 through 22, they promise progress, but they can bring only turning back or regress. Verse 24, if after they escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first They promise a last state that's better than the first. They themselves are in bondage to a last state that's worse than the first. And that's all that they can deliver. Verse 21, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So Peter in chapter 2 has warned us. And in, really what he's done then is with big, bold highlight, underline how important it is that we be in church and we sit under solid teaching and that we grow in the knowledge of Christ. Because there are people out there who will try to sabotage your knowledge of Christ. And the way that you grow in the grace of Christ is you grow in the knowledge of Christ. So you have to protect yourself. You have to be aware of these dangers. The comfort that he brings us is that Christ is our true shepherd. And he's been given authority 
to see these men and to reserve them for punishment and for judgment. So it's a powerhouse of a chapter, really. But he's made two points. We must be growing in the grace of Christ, the grace of a risen Christ who's coming again, a glorified Christ. We must be pursuing His grace. We must be pursuing His glory. We must be pursuing a life of holiness and righteousness, uh, Christ-like virtue. We do this by growing in knowledge. So as he comes into chapter 3, the final point that he's going to make is that we must be growing in anticipation of this resurrected, ruling and reigning, soon coming Christ. We must be growing in anticipation of his soon return. This is what it means to live the Christian life. This is what it means to live the resurrected life, anticipating Christ's return. So in chapter 3, verse 1 through 16, this is his point. We must be growing in a readiness, a hastening for the day of Christ, for the return of Christ. If you'll look with me at verse 12, verse 11 and 12, this is the key idea that Peter has that's running throughout chapter 3. He says, since all these things, that's the world that we live in, and the relationships that we've built, and the works that we've done, since everything that we have grown familiar with in this world are to be dissolved, what kind of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If we're going to come face to face with God through Jesus Christ, and the only thing that's going to remain is our trust in Him and our love for Him, what kind of people ought we to be? People who fill their lives up with works that reflect that trust and that love is the idea. But verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And I focus your attention then on these words, verse 12, waiting for, that's looking forward to Christ's coming to destroy the world and to remake a new world and hastening it. That means to be praying for it to come quickly. Asking the Lord Jesus, can we be done with this intermediary period? We're united to Christ, brothers, and yet the wedding day hasn't come. Can we just get to the wedding day? (laughs) Can we just be through with the betrothal? Can we be through with this age of suffering, this age of sickness, this age of death, and especially this age of sin and imperfection? I mean, isn't it true that we call out here to the Lord like David does in Psalm 25 and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. They're so great. We, Lord, I've, even when I try to be holy, I fail. <laughs> even when I'm watching and looking out, that's when I'm trapped. Can we be done with this age? Lord Jesus, come. Quickly. Glorify us. Make us what you've destined us to be. (laughs) Let us share in that which you are the first fruits of because of your great love for us. Now we trust your wisdom, but Lord, come quickly. That's what Peter's getting at here in chapter 3. And he roots it all in verse 1 and 2 in the Gospel. He makes his transition from chapter 2. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Beloved, And he reminds us that we're beloved by this Christ and we're beloved by His Father. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind, your cleansed, purified, washed mind. 
by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And that's a beautiful transition from chapter 2 to reorient us, to get us back into the mindset of grace, to remember that we're loved by God with a propitiating love. We're baptized, we're made holy, and He's promised to give us the kingdom. He calls the apostles, brothers, your apostles. They're your apostles. The apostles are what? Emissaries of the resurrected Christ. What does the New Testament teach us about the apostles? They're the foundation of the kingdom of God. If God has given you the foundations, then He's given you the kingdom. If He's given you the emissary, He's given you the king. It's just a reminder, Peter is saying. You've been given the kingdom. Remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord through your apostles. The kingdom is coming. That's the prediction. The commandment. Because the kingdom has come in me, Christ says, repent and believe the gospel. And he's given this to us and explained this to us through the apostles. He's given us the kingdom. He loves us. He's baptized us. He's given us the kingdom. This ought to promote in us the spirit of readiness and hastening that we just mentioned. He warns us in verse 5, pardon me, verse 5 through 7, that we must trust God's word about this coming. There's going to be scoffers, he says in verse 3. They'll tempt us, they'll lead us astray, they'll try to undermine the promises of the Word of God. But you remember the Word of God, he says in verse 5 through 7. God the Father has already done this. He's already, dis- he's already created the world out of nothing. Created something new when there was nothing there. He's already done it once. He's already destroyed the, wo- the world once in the flood. And His Son is coming to do the same thing twice in the reverse order. To destroy the world, not with water, but with fire and to recreate the heavens and the earth, a place where righteousness dwells. He says, don't listen to the scoffers. Trust the promises of the Word of God. Verse 8-10, through we must gain Christ's perspective on this second coming. We must remember who it is who's speaking to us when He promises that He's coming again soon. We must remember the dignity and the divinity, especially of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is one with His Father. He is the eternal God. He is outside and above time. He says, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16 reminds us, the root and the descendant of David. He's the root of David. He's David's creator. He's the descendant of David. He's come in the flesh. But it's this one, this one who is creator, this one who's a divine being in human flesh who speaks to us and promises, I'm coming again quickly. He holds all of human history in the palm of His hand in His divine nature. From the beginning of creation, brothers, to the far ends of the new heavens and the new earth, He is equally near to every moment in time. He is imminently close and present every moment of time, every moment of human history to the end of the age, for Him to say, I'm coming quickly, could mean anything, (laughs) is is the conclusion that we come to. We must remember who it is who speaks to us. He's the eternal God. And He can come back at any time. So what does He mean when He says that He's coming soon? Well, it doesn't mean that it's without reference to time at all. We can trust that there's a soonness to it, there's a nearness to it. But the idea is, is that He's communicating to us that He's ready to come. He's ready to come. We ought to be ready to come. That's what Peter wants us to think about there. You see, he's encouraging us to be ready. He loves us. He's baptized us. He's given us the kingdom. I'm ready. Lord, come. His word is promised that, Lord, fulfill your promises. He's ready to come. 
He says, I'm coming quickly. And so I should be ready for him to come. And Peter is helpful for us in verse 9 because he reminds us quickly, well, why does he delay? We've got to get this perspective. We need to understand the timing. Why does he delay? If he's ready, <laughs> and he's the eternal God and the one who rules and reigns and can come back at any time that he pleases, why does he delay? Verse 9, because he's patient towards you. Because he's waiting for you. It, it's not his will that you should perish. It's not will that any of his elect of any of your children or your children's children or of their children should perish. And so he's patient. And we see his wonderful grace. The eternal God who is ready, waiting, and patient for the sake of his people. And brothers, this should cause us to call, long for him to come all the more. And then Peter is helpful for us in verse 10 because he reminds us that yes, Christ is ready. He is patient, but we can't presume upon his patience because when he comes, it'll be too late to get ready. He's giving us time to get ready. It'll be too late to get ready when he comes. He's coming like a thief in the night, suddenly and unexpectedly and with total destruction. No one can wait for Christ to return. You know, I think a lot of people in the flesh think this way. You know how people are. You know how unbelievers are, the way they reason through things. You know how your children are, the way they reason through things. They say, well, if God is going to judge the world, how long does it take to judge billions of people? <clears throat> and they think, I'll have time in line to repent. When Christ comes, then I'll repent. And the Bible says that's a misconception. It's absolutely false. When Christ comes again, it's like a thief in the night. It's sudden and it's immediate and it's total universal destruction. And there is no more time to get ready. There's not, not, not a single action that can be done in response to it. It's final. So Peter's very helpful for us. But again, we say, Lord, come quickly. We're ready. We're looking forward to this day. And look at the language at the end of verse 10. The way he describes the destruction of the world. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. That's with a swiftness. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. It's all of creation, heaven and earth. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed and burned up. The accomplishments of men erased. Again, nothing left but God face to face with man. Nothing left but the faith and love that were in those works or the lack thereof. And so verse 11 through 13, Peter exhorts us, we must be hoping for the transformation that this return of Christ is going to bring. Brothers, it's already transforming us. Again, look at verse 11. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? There's already a power, there's already a work at play here by faith and through our hope, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We don't do that by nature. We do it by the Word of God. There's already a transformation taking place in our souls because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13, there's a transformation that will take place. There's one that's already beginning. There's one that's going to be complete and final and perfect. Verse 13, but according to the promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells.
The day is coming quickly. <laughs> and Christ is ready for it. And he's helping us. He's being patient with us. In which we will be made perfect. So all of this diligent search for Christ-likeness. And all of this reminder and recall and work and listening to the gospel. And being wary of the false teachers is going to consummate, brothers, with a glorious day of fulfillment, a day of perfection, where the grace of Christ is perfected in us. The holiness of Christ is truly perfected in us. And it will be impossible to sin. And we will be finished with sin and with sinners and the opposition. Perfectly. Forever and ever. (laughs) And this is our great hope. And Peter said, you've got to hope for it. When you hope for it, that's when you pray, Lord, come quickly. And then so very, just very briefly in verse 14 through 16, as he's wrapping up the body of his letter, he makes three practical applications. Christ is coming again. He's ready to come again. So you, three things. Number one, believer, get ready to meet Christ. Be ready to have your works exposed before him. And to be seen for who you really are and what they really are in faith and in love. Second, count his patience as salvation. Take every moment that Christ doesn't return as an opportunity to trust him and to love him. And then finally, and he says it implicitly, I'm not going to go into the details of the text. He says, study the scriptures, study Paul, study the other apostles, study all of scriptures so that you might learn to love and trust Christ more. Three practical applications of Christ's soon return. Three practical applications of the life of Christ, His resurrected, glorified life living within you. Get ready to meet Him. Take every opportunity to love Him and trust Him. And study the Scriptures to know how to love and trust Him more. And brothers, what the Scriptures will reveal is that you love and trust Him more the more that you recognize how much He loves you. And how faithful he is. So let's conclude this. Let's conclude our series on 2 Peter. And conclude our sermon for this afternoon. If you're in Jesus Christ. I mean my first question to you. And it's not even a question. It's my challenge to you. Brothers, what great things God has done for us. What an amazing savior it is that we serve. What a glorious Christ. What a wonderful thing it is. That the Father has married us to the Son. Has married us to Jesus Christ in covenantal union. And we are united to a risen, ascended, ruling and reigning, glorified and returning Christ. I mean, praise the Lord, brothers. He's caused His life to live within you. And if these things are the case, then brothers, do what Peter says as he closes his book. Be careful about those who lead you astray from it. But grow in the grace of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, and the anticipation of His return. Keep growing. Keep pursuing it in the power that God Himself supplies. Always ready to say, to Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And if you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, you're outside of Christ. (laughs) You're outside of the glorified risen One. You have no glory. You have no life. You have no hope. The Scriptures say that you are dead in your trespasses and sin. His life does not live within you. God commands you to live 
He commands you to awake from sleep and rise from the dead and come to Jesus Christ and receive his glory in his life. That's God's command. He commands you to renounce your sin and to bow the knee to the ascended Christ and to receive the kingdom that he freely gives and to give him all the glory, both now starting today and to the day of eternity. Amen. You know what that means? That means may it be so. (laughs) May it be so. May God grant that commandment and the power to keep it to you today. And, And all God's people say, Amen.